when I uh, say the word gospel, what comes to mind? When I say the word gospel, what comes to mind? Maybe it's a genre of music, gospel music. Uh, maybe uh, you, you think it's synonymous with truth, the gospel truth. Uh, maybe you just think, well, that's just a Bible word. I mean, that's, a, that's like a religious word. That's what, what people who, who go to church, that's a word they use. But when the Bible talks about the gospel, it has an infinitely deeper meaning than that. In fact, uh, the, the, the word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, which literally means good news. And I've, I've shared this before, uh, but, but it works so well this morning, I wanted to share it again. The gospel is really a military term. Back in the, uh, in, in the first century and even prior, uh, cities would be built with four walls around it for protection. And what they would do is they would take four watchmen and they'd set them on each corner of the city. And their job was to look out outside of the city walls, up into the mountains, into the valleys, uh, out into the plains, wherever the, the city was situated. Their job was to sit on the city wall and to look out and see if an invading army was coming to try and take over the city, ransack the city, and overthrow the government there. And so these watchmen would look out uh, off the city wall, seeing if a, uh, an approaching army was coming to take over the city. And if they saw an approaching army, what they would do is they would send word into the city that an approaching army was coming to overthrow their city to take them over and to ransack them. And so the city army would, would congregate together, they'd get together, and they would go out the, 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 the city gate, out into the mountains, out to the plains, out to the valleys, to meet the, the invading army on neutral ground. And they would do battle there. Well, as you can imagine, they didn't have electronic communication back then. There was no... No texting, no phones, no Twitter, none of that. And so the people would sit inside the city walls hour after hour, some, in some instances day after day, with anxiety, wondering, are we going to be overthrown? Are we going to die? Are we going to live? Are we going to be held captive? Are they going to come ransack our city? Are our kids going to be thrust into slavery and have to work for this invading army and their invading king? Are we going to live or are we going to die? And so they would sit in the city anxiously awaiting, anxiously listening, anxiously waiting to find out the outcome of the battle that had taken place. Well, if the invading army won their battle, obviously that was a bad day. They would come in, overthrow the city, ransack the city. People would die. Children would be held captive. It was a bad day for that city, but if the defending army would, they would send back a messenger. They would send back a person, a messenger to the city with an euangelion, a gospel, good news. And that messenger would get to the city, he would... He would, he would go through the gate, he would climb the wall, he would stand on the wall, and all the city would gather around him. 
And he would look down on the city and he would say, Today, I bring to you an Uangelion, I bring you good news. A battle has been waged on your behalf. And our army has won and you are free. I have good news. And this morning, that is exactly what we are here to do. I stand before you declaring we have good news. Jesus has stepped on the battlefield of sin. Jesus has stepped on the battlefield of death. And he has come back victorious. And that is a new on that. Good news. Amen. The travesty is, I think many of us have traded in the good news, the gospel, for a dry religion. And the reason that I say that is because I did that for so many years. I'll never forget it was one afternoon I was. a group of us, some of our, some of me and my friends had decided that we were going to go to a concert. We were going to go listen to Carmen. We were cool. <laughs> some of you are like, Carmen, who is she? No, not she. It's he. I know it's bad. But nonetheless, I was headed to a concert, the Champion concert. Oh, it was awesome. And uh, we were headed to that concert. But before we went, we, were, we decided that, that my friends and I were going to meet at the church. Um, and then we were going to drive together to the concert. Well, my friend and I, Robbie, his name's Robbie Leffel, he lived right down the road from, from us. He picked me up on the way to church before we were going to meet our friends. And when we got there, we, were, we happened to be the first one there, so we got out of the car. We were sitting on his, the hood of his car, and we began to have a conversation. I don't remember exactly how the conversation started, but I do remember this part of the conversation. We had decided, you know, these two great theological brains were talking to each other, we decided... That we, we, we kind of had this whole gospel thing, this whole Christianity thing figured out. Here's was, here was our conclusion. That God has this list. Actually, he has two lists. It's a good list and it's a bad list. And he would constantly watch our lives. And whenever we, we, had, we did good things, whenever we said positive things, whenever our thoughts were pure and holy and right, he would write that down on the good list side of our life. But... Whenever we did bad things, whenever we, we said bad, you know, bad, we, we spoke poorly towards somebody, said bad words, we had negative thoughts, bad thoughts, immoral thoughts, he would write that down as well. Now we did conclude that if, if we would, would come before God, if we did something bad, we came before God, and we really, really meant it, and we really, really asked for forgiveness, and we really, really repented, and he would take it, this cosmic eraser, he would erase the bad thing from this side of the, uh, this, this uh, a bad list on our life, and would not count it against us for that point, you know, from that point on. We decided that's what God did. And the goal was at the end of our life that the good list would be just a little bit longer than the bad list. And then God would sort it all out. We were good to go. <laughs> So you can think there's two very wise teenagers sitting on the hood of a car coming up with this garbage. But the reason that we believed it was that's what we were taught. Our our youth pastor, our pastor, would take a passage of scripture and he would open it up and he would say, the Bible teaches that you're to love one another as I have loved you. And he he would 
dive into that scripture. He would talk about what love looks like and how God loved us and how you know he he sent his only son to die for us. We're the we're to in return love other people like God has loved us. And so his grand crescendo, his great application was go out and be like Jesus and love other people. Or he would take a negative verse, a negative scripture, and he would teach on it. He would break it apart. He would, he would uh, show us what the Bible teaches. And then his great crescendo, his great application, his great takeaway was, now don't do that. And that was pretty easy for me, I thought. I thought, well, I don't want to end up like Samson. I don't want a, a roof falling in on my head. I'm not going to do that. That was easy enough. But as I got older, you're probably like me. I did a whole lot more things on the badness than the goodness. I mean, I would try and I would try and I would try. But I would just keep gravitating towards the bad list. And the result was that I just hated myself. And I thought God hated me too. I thought he was sitting on his throne going, Scott, why can't you just get yourself together? In fact, this, last, this, this bad list is getting longer and longer. And the longer it gets, the more I wish I'd never even created you. And I thought God was as, as angry with me as I was with myself. And then I would talk to somebody, I'd hear a sermon, and they'd, they, you know, get me all gung-ho, and, and the pendulum would swing the other direction. I'd go forward, rededicate my life, whatever that means, and I'd say, God... I'm going to get myself together. I'm going to do more things on the good list this time. And I'm going to do it for a while. And that's a completely different kind of messed up because I was self-righteous. But messed up nonetheless. And I think I have it all together. And about a month later, the pendulum would swing back. And I'd just go back to doing the things on the badness, even though I didn't want to. And the unfortunate thing is, I think probably many of us in here this morning believe that that is Christianity. And that is absolutely nowhere in the scriptures. Jesus never teaches that. It is a foreign teaching of Jesus. I put in my notes... I said the essence of our faith is the truth that he loves you and accepts you and he connects with you and he is pleased with you. He likes you this morning if you know Christ. Not on the basis of what you have done. Instead, he loves you. He connects with you. He is for you. He is pleased with you on the basis of what Jesus has already done for you. That's the gospel. That is the foundation of what it means to be a believer. That is the foundation of what it means to know Christ. That's the reason that Jesus came. And he knows nothing of these lists that I constantly rise up in my life and try not to do and try to do. And if you were honest, you probably do the same thing. It's nowhere in Scripture. In fact, all you have to do is look at the very first thing that Jesus ever said in, in the, the Gospel of Mark. And it shows us that this is completely 
opposite. It stands in stark contrast to what Jesus taught. This dry, stale religion of lists stands in stark contrast to the very first thing that Jesus taught. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus shows up on the scene. Up to this point, he has not spoken in the gospel of Mark. This is the very first thing that he says. Now, after John, John was Jesus' cousin, was arrested. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the Evangelion of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The time is right. I have showed up on the scene, and I have brought a new religion to you. I've got a new list of dues that I want you to, 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 to do your best to keep. And I have a new list of don'ts that I want you to try to muster all of your might up and not do. I've got a new standard of morality for you. And it's a new list of do's and a new list of don'ts. That is not what Jesus showed up on the scene and taught. And yet, I default to that all the time. In contrast, he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news, the ooh and galeon. Well, what does that mean? Why would Jesus start his very first sermon this way? Well, he shows up on the scene and he says, on the scene and he says, the time is fulfilled. And if you know anything about the way that God related to us, related to humanity, related to, to people in the Old Testament, you would understand that throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, excuse me, specifically, the Bible said over and over and over again that God was long-suffering. He was slow to anger. He was compassionate. He was abounding in love towards us. I mean, here we are, the created ones. And we stand and we look before the sovereign God of the universe and we stick our finger in his face and we say, we know what's better for ourselves than you do. We know what it right and wrong looks like better than you do. I think I can control this myself. I got this under control. So you need to just sit over there in the corner until I call you because until that happens, I've got it under control. And the God of the universe, the Bible says, looks at us in that posture, and is slow to anger. He abounds in love. He's compassionate. His loving kindness is new every morning. But the Bible also says that he is just, that he is righteous, that he is holy, and therefore cannot let the guilty go unpunished. And so while the Bible says he's compassionate, he's, his loving kindness endures every morning, he's, he's slow to anger, he is abounding in love, there comes a point in his character, in his, in his uh, uh, righteousness, that he must, he must, he must deal with our sin. And throughout the Old Testament, at that point, at that point when, when God is, proclaims that his, 
good or his, his kindness and his long suffering and his anger has, has, or his slowness to anger has run out and he must in his righteousness in his justice deal with our anger when or deal with our sin when the sin cup has filled to the top it is overflowing that time that point in time throughout the Old Testament is the, the time of fulfillment. The time of fulfillment. So, Jesus shows up on the scene. And the first thing he says is the time is fulfilled. Well, every good Jew that was within earshot of him, every good Jew that could hear what Jesus was saying, knew exactly what he meant. And their mind went back to the Old Testament stories that they learned as a child. Their, their mind went back to the flood. Their mind went back to Sodom and Gomorrah. They knew that God was, was slow to anger. He was slow to anger. They knew that he was, he was long-suffering. But they also knew that he was just. They also knew that he was righteous. And he must deal with sin. And so the time of fulfillment had come. And they knew that that meant it was time to get the children. It was time to get the wife. It was time to get on the boat and get out of Dodge. Because justice, righteous, holy justice was about to rain down. And so they hear Jesus show up on the scene and they understand that the sin cup is filled. And the time of fulfillment has come. God was about to deal with their sin. And they knew they had to get out of Dodge. Well, when they heard Jesus say that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, they, any good Jewish person would have understood that he would follow that up, he would finish that statement by saying, repent, because God is about to take you out. But that's not what Jesus says. Instead, he says, repent and believe the good news. To which every Jewish person would have said, what are you talking about? Believe some sort of good news. What do you mean, believe some good news? And Jesus would say, yep, that is exactly right. The time of fulfillment has come. The sin cup is full. And God's righteous anger is about to rain down. But the good news is this. Instead of his righteous anger raining down on you, as you have read about through all of the Old Testament, as you have seen play out in the flood, As you have seen play out in Sodom and Gomorrah. In contrast to that, the good news is this. This time, God's holy and justified wrath is going to rain down. But it's going to rain down once. And as a gift for all, it's going to rain down on me. Jesus said. Even though I did not deserve it. Even though I have never sinned, not one time, God's holy 
Perfect wrath is going to rain down on me. And if you will hide under that good news, you will be spared. It's no wonder that in Romans, the Apostle Paul said it like this. Chapter 5, starting in verse 6. So for while we were still weak, while you were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for, for every one of us that stuck our finger in God's face and said, I'm a better sovereign than you. He died for every one of us who thought that we could appease a God by doing more things on the good list than on the bad list. At just the right time, he died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to even die. But God chose his love for us. And that while we were still opposed to God, a sinner, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, and that word justified, it's a legal term, and it means to be pardoned. It does not mean that you're innocent. It means that the penalty has been paid already, and you're free to go. Has been pardoned or justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? That is good news. You've been reconciled by the life of Jesus. Doing for you what you can never do for yourself. In my notes I put this. Every religion is defined by someone who tries their hardest to follow a list of do's and don'ts and are in an effort to please God. Every other religion the world has ever known says if you want to please God, obey a list of rules. But the Bible teaches and stands in stark contrast to that. That a follower of Christ is defined by somebody who repents and believes the gospel. And the gospel says that God is pleased with you today because of Christ. And what he has done on the cross in your place. That's good news. So I just want to ask two quick questions. And then I'll close this thing out. First question is this. If you're sitting in here this morning. And you do not know Christ. You thought this life was about doing the best that you can. And at the end of it all, just letting God sort it out. You thought this life was about a list of do's and a list of don'ts, and you're just doing your best to keep the list of do's. My question for you this morning is, would you respond to the gospel, the good news, the Galeon? In just a minute, we're going to stand up and we're going to pray. If that's you, you're sitting here this morning and you have never understood it like that. You always just thought it was another religion, just a, another religion in a list of so many world religions. I'd invite you, when we bow our heads, to just scoot out of your, your seat. Nobody's even going to know. Their heads are going to be bowed. And at the back of the room, there's going to be a couple guys 
that serve here at, at Wellspring. And they would love nothing more than to share with you what it means to understand the gospel and to give your life to Christ this morning. So in just a minute, I invite you to leave your seat and we bow our head and head to the back of the room. Nobody's even going to realize what you're doing. Their heads are going to be bowed. Second question is this. If you're here this morning and you know Christ, does your life reflect this truth today? Have you been set free and set free completely by the gospel? Do you understand this morning that God does not just put up with you? He loves you. He likes you. And he loves having a relationship with you. And it does not matter what you did this week. It does not matter what you thought about this week. It does not matter what kind of mess you have made. God likes you because of Jesus. Are you living in that truth this morning? Because that's the gospel. As I close, go back to the city walls with me. The battle has just been taking place and the defending army is won and they send back this messenger. He arrives at the city. He heads up to the wall and gathers everybody in the city around him. At this point, you can hear a pin drop. Everybody's wondering what has happened. Am I going to live today or am I going to die? Am I going to be free or am I headed into captivity? What's going to happen to my kids? Do they have a hope? Do they have a future? And the messenger stands up on the battle or on the wall from coming back from the battlefield and he says, This morning I have good news. A battle has been waged. You are free to go. We have been victorious. Let me just tell you what the crowds did not do. When the messenger stood up and delivered the Evangelion, the good news, I guarantee you, it didn't matter if it was a man or if it was a woman, if it was a young person or an old person, if it was somebody who was rich or somebody who was poor, none of them crossed their arms and gave. A little, a little nod. Yep, I agree with you, man. That's good news. I guarantee you there was nobody in that city that day when that messenger stood up on the wall and delivered this to Galeon, who gave a, 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 a golf clap of appreciation for what he had just delivered. They went wild. They were reckless in their exuberance. Church this morning, stand before you with the Evangelion. Good news. Jesus has walked onto the battlefield that you and I could never walk on. Sin and death. And he has returned victorious. 
And I'm going to worship recklessly thankful for it. Let's stand. Let's thank Him for that doing daily on. The good news. The gospel. If you don't know Christ, as soon as we bow our head, you just make your way to the back of the room. There's two guys waiting for you. They would love to share with you more about the, the gospel. The good news, the doing galeon. And what it means to be found in Christ, to be covered by His blood and redeemed, walking out victorious, just like He did from the grave so many years ago. If you know Christ, we're going to sing. I would encourage you to sing it. Worship just like that first century city when they heard the good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. The good news. And Lord, we know that you don't receive any worth, any value from the, the, the ones that you have created. Yet, this morning, in response to the, the good news that the grave is empty, we are going to worship recklessly. Thanking you for the gospel. 